for the message today. Uh, we had a short discussion, and he would like me to read from Malachi uh, chapter 4, uh, starting in chapter, in, starting in verse 1 through the end. Starting in verse 1 through the end. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, that so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law, my servant Moses. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him and Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, John. It's very helpful. I'm currently in the book of Zephaniah, so appreciate that. So, John, actually, I'm going to ask you to read from Second Hezekiah also, if you would. So just go ahead and get there. Um, it's, it's actually kind of hard to believe that we're already through this book, um, through Malachi. And um, we have been... Uh, John and I meet here in the morning on, on Fridays, most mornings, um, and we've been outlining the book of 1 John, uh, so that's where, uh, where we're going to be headed next. Um, I think we, we did 2 John, yeah, 2 and 3 John, um, so we'll do 1 John and then we'll have, uh, we'll have gone through all those, and then we actually came up with a pattern by which we'll cover down on all of the book of Psalms over the next 20 years. Um, so when we do bridges between books, we're going to do a, um, a series through the Psalms, through a few books in each book in the Psalms at a time. And um, over the next couple of decades, if the Lord should tarry, we'll have, uh, we'll have studied all the Psalms. So that'll be cool. That's how we'll get through the Psalms. Otherwise, it would be a long, long study. I'm not really sure if anybody's ever really done that. I mean, I guess it's happened. Five and a half years. And that's probably at a quick clip. I think we did Acts and two. So, all that said, welcome. Um, uh, Jim Douglas is feeling sick today. He asked me to talk about his, the specifics of his sickness, but I will not. Um, so, I could just see him right now on the couch grimacing. Uh, so, keep him in your prayers. Um, he's not feeling well. Last week, uh, Pastor John taught through um, from Malachi 3.13 to 4.3, um, which is interesting because it was, it was hard to find the division between 3.13 and, and where chapter 4 picks up. And, you know, when you're, when you're talking to your, your Hebrew friends, uh, they would recognize that confusion because they don't recognize a fourth chapter um, at all in, in, the book of, in the book of Malachi. Uh, but there's a lot of areas for, where we differ from our from our uh, Jewish friends, um, specifically now as we come towards the end of Malachi, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, 
But what we see, as uh, Pastor John Nicholas taught last week um, in Malachi 3.13 and 4.3, is a looking back. And it's really interesting when we read in the Old Testament, it's really interesting as New Testament believers, we get all kinds of other information that folks weren't privy to. Um, or, you know, we see God faithfully delivering um, on what he promised. And we get to see the specifics of how he does that. And there's a lot of really interesting things that are happening as we now close the book of Malachi very quickly. Um, a lot of interesting things that are happening that ties the New Testament and the Old Testament, lots of, lots of things that were going on. Um, and so we'll, we'll explore through some of that as well. Um, there's a forward-looking for them, backward-looking for us, promise in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4 about the sun, um, and that's S-U-N. It's important that you don't just hear it and hear sun because you think of the sun of righteousness and you think, oh, that's Jesus, and you're right, but it's spelled S-U-N of righteousness. And so these are folks that very much have a sun. Um, you know, they go outside in the morning and they look up in the sky and there's a sun radiating down and warming them. Pennsylvania, you guys remember what warmth used to feel like, right? You would go outside and the sun would be radiating things and it would be a nice comfortable temperature like 80 to 90 degrees. Uh, Now we go outside and everything's miserable and your face gets chapped. Let's just jump straight to chapter 4 for right now, verses 4 through 6. We'll read read verse 4 and then we'll just go verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. We'll take one at a time. Verse 4 reads like this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Now, for those of us who who live today, who live on this side of the cross, maybe it feels a little defeating for Israel. Um, So that you you hear about these promises that, that they're going to be realizing in the Son of Righteousness all of these great things that are going to happen for them when the Son of Righteousness comes, like all their enemies are going to be put to waste, everything's going to be great, they're going to be bounding forward like a calf with all kinds of energy, but for now, pay attention and do the work of the law. Um, so maybe a bit, a bit defeating for them. But they get a glimpse into freedom that's found in Christ as opposed to bondage to the law, um, described in, in Malachi 4, 2, and 3. But for... You who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For there will be ashes under the soles of your feet, and on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. I love that visual image of the calf busting forward from the stall. Um, if you're somewhere over, you know, 35, 40, 40 years of age, uh, you know exactly what that means. Um, you don't bound anywhere anymore. Uh, you, you see the meme where um, it's the, the lights on the dashboard of a car and they're all on. And it's like, this is what happens when I stand up out of my chair. Um, I hurt my back yesterday and I, I don't even know what I did. Just at some point in the middle of the day, I went, and I couldn't stand up right in a proper position. Will you imagine this, the energy of a calf bounding forward? You know, you can almost see them moving kind of sloppily as they can't really control their arms. And Well, I guess cows don't have arms, right? They do. They're just on the front and they stand on them. But they can't control their arms and their legs. They're just leaping and their bodies are moving around crazily. And that 
is the way the prophet Malachi describes the energy and the excitement and the blessing of having freedom in Christ. I love that picture. So how would they then hear from God going forward? The prophets have come, right? Malachi is a prophet. If we look in our Bible, this is going to be the last book that we see ordered in the Bible. Um, in, in terms of revelatory order, probably not the last speaking prophet, but things are winding down. And so when we read in our Bible, uh, we have this last. It makes sense if we think kind of chronologically. It makes sense to hear this and then know there was the intertestamental period, 400 some years of silence, and then pick up with the announcements of the birth of Jesus that we're going to hear about soon. And in Sunday school, we're learning about uh, with Christmas and all the different celebrations there. Uh, this morning, we learned um, that uh, in the Thoman home, the basement is full of all kind of wickedry, uh, Santa Claus posters and strangeness. <laughs> Roy, actually, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and do it, man. Roy, a lot of people don't know this, but Roy is a mall Santa Claus. Um, and so let children go and they get their photographs taken with him. And that's just part of what, you know, the, the celebration of Easter that his, or Christmas that his family does. So that's, that's nice of him. <laughs> so there's this intertestamental period where the, for them where, the, where things just go silent. Um, and so what's happening, what, what, what Malachi is doing, right, in, in Malachi 4.4, 4, because they know when, when, when the sun comes, they're, they're going to have all of this freedom. Things are going to be great, right? There's, there's no more prophets in that period. So during the time from when the prophets stop and the intertestamental period picks up, they're encouraged in 4.4 to remember the law of my servant Moses. They're supposed to remember the law. They're supposed to be in the word. They're supposed to go and read about God. They're not going to be hearing anymore from God. That period is over. The period of the prophets is concluded. Things are wrapped up. Everything that needed to be said is now documented. It's on scrolls. It's being taught in the synagogues. And so this is how they will then hear from God. And the same is true for us in a sense. You know, the way that we hear from God. You hear all kinds of interesting Christianese. Talk, people talk about hearing from God. And um, if you go to Best Buy, you go to Jonestown Road. If you're not from the area, you leave here. You, you come out on 18th, you turn right, you go. It's amazing. This road turns from everything to State Street, to Her, to 22. But at some point in there, when it changes its many names, you'll get to Best Buy. If you turn left at Best Buy and you go just behind there, there's a church that says God is still talking. Not true. They're wrong and crazy. If you want to hear from God, you pick up your Bible, you open it, and you read what he has already said. This is a living two-edged sword that cuts to the division between bone and spirit, soul and spirit, bone and marrow. Um, this is where we can go and be sure that we're not in danger of error because God has already spoken. There is no more speaking. You do not get private revelation. God is not talking to you something that hasn't been recorded in the book of Scripture. We don't appreciate this Bible enough. Written over a period of, of 1,500 years. Think about that, 1,500 years. How old is this country? Like 200 and something? The scriptures that we have in our hands are written over a period of 1,500 years. 66 individual books inside there. Maybe three languages this book is written in. 
27 books in the New Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, written by over 40 authors. But we don't appreciate how incredible this is. And so when we say that it is without error, that is fascinating. You couldn't even have two experts in the same field write a single opinion that was more than a couple of pages without complete breakdown and total disagreement. But the scriptures, written by 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years, people that didn't even know each other, people that perhaps hadn't even read each other's works, most likely, in many circumstances, hadn't read what the others had written, all in perfect harmony, perfect alignment. You, you, it's, it's impossible that this could be. And to make it even wilder, you hear about the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? This is a, um, an area in Qumran above the Dead Sea, like literally above the Dead Sea. You're looking down on it. Um, where there was a, a library collected by these, by these scribes, by these people, and it was all underground for years. So we had all these translations of the Bible floating around. No one had ever seen these scrolls until someday, I think the story goes, a shepherd boy stirring rocks. Who knows if it's true? doesn't matter. They found them, and they opened them up. Over a period of years, people fight over who owns them. People fight over who gets to see them. And then finally, the actual work of translation happens, and it's almost identical to what we have always had. And that breaks apart the, the argument maybe you've heard before. Oh, well, the scriptures were handed down through an intricate game of telephone. One person whispered into the next person's ear, and certainly it's full of errors. The problem with that is it's not true. It sounds interesting, but it's not true. And it actually shows the divine authorship of the scriptures and the reliability of the manuscripts, that we had this one underground for so many years that nobody knew about, and then when it finally surfaces, it's the same as the others that we have already had. 1,500 years, 66 books, three languages, and three continents. One message. This is a book that's stupefying, life-changing, and life-giving, but we ignore it. And so they're encouraged then to remember the law of Moses because this period of time where the prophets are coming and the prophets are talking to them, the prophets are telling them what God wants them to hear specifically, have now been recorded. That time period is over. God has spoken. It is complete. Someone should let the people behind Best Buy know. And so here's the interesting thing about the scriptures. So if I step back from Malachi and the people that Malachi is talking to, and I step towards us, if we don't spend time and relationship with God in this stupefying life-changing, life-giving word, our minds won't find transforming truth. We'll go about dumbly following lies, be led into sin, and sin is hatred of God. Um, and I'm, I'm a lot like LeVar Burton in a lot of ways. N not that I wear some strange visor to see or that I read children's books, but you don't have to take my word for it. You can read yourself. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, knowing what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this living, breathing word is designed that we interact with it. It's designed that we be reading it. It's designed that we be in it. And it doesn't stagnate. It doesn't get old. It doesn't stop being helpful. It's how our minds are renewed. And I'm telling you, when we're not in it, when we're not spending time with it, when we're not around other believers, we drift. We necessarily drift. We absolutely do. 
Uh, it's like John 3, 16. When you go on and you read 17, 18, and 19, it says that we are so drawn away from the light. We're drawn towards the darkness. We're not drawn towards the light. We're not drawn into the light where truth lives. We're drawn towards the dark corners of things. And I'm, increasingly, it's easier. It's so easy to be drawn into the darkness. Um, you think about, you know, um, the Internet is an amazing thing. Everything is instantaneously available to you in your hand. And increasingly so, now that we have phones, right? Um, you, can, you can be knowledgeable about anything in a moment's notice. You can be anywhere. You can be transformed across the world. And it's great, but it also requires that we have our minds be being transformed in the Word near constantly. And the thing about transformation is that it's binary. It is either in process, it is either currently happening, or it is either not happening. There isn't an in-between. You either are being transformed, or you are not actively being transformed. And when you fall in the category of not actively being transformed, that's when you're pulled in all kinds of directions. But not, you're not being pulled towards God's will. So the prophet Malachi returns Israel to the law. The 39 books that would be or would soon be available to them. He leaves them behind with a marker. Because remember, they're not going to hear much after this. So he leaves them behind with this, with this mention of coming back to the law so that they would be abiding in God. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I will send Elijah. So who is Elijah? If you were to look in your Bible at 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, you find a fascinating instance. Um, it is appointed to every person to die except for Elijah. Verse 9, when they had crossed, Elisha said to Elisha, Ask, what shall I do for you before I am taken from you? And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So that is Elijah. He was taken up. Now it's interesting this mention um, left behind all kinds of thoughts in the, in the Jewish minds. They thought that um, Elijah didn't die, so perhaps he would be reincarnated, he would be brought back into the world, and this is what was going to usher in um, what the prophet Malachi is talking about. Um, Elijah, as we look across the scriptures, is a very interesting character. We don't really know where he comes from. He just kind of shows up on the scene. Um, not, not unlike um, others, actually, in scripture. Sometimes the, some of the most interesting people are, are fairly well obscured so that we don't dwell, probably, on the details of who they are and obsess over the wrong thing, because that's exactly what we would do. We would say, hey, I haven't been told 
all the history of this person. So rather than taking the face of their message and diving into what God's given me, I'd like to look at what might be so. And so Elijah is one like that. Um, but we do get to read about him a bit in the book of Kings. And in uh, 1 Kings 19, 1 through 8, we see that Elijah falls into a certain deep depression, moves into the caves, lives alone. Um, and God gives um, believers fellowship to Elijah when he sends him Elisha. And this is very important. Elijah felt like he was alone in the world. Elisha comes along, and the two are able to, to, to speak together and be together. And at least he's with someone else who's a believer in God. It's important for us as believers. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. We need one another. And if you're prideful enough to say, I don't need one another, fine. Other people then perhaps need you. Um, said before that uh, the body is made up of many members, right? That means some people are hands, some people are feet, some people are noses, those kinds of things. Um, you, any of those things on its own is not strange or terrifying. But if you came over to my house and said, hey, John, can I get some ice? And I said, sure, it's in the freezer. And you opened it up and there was a hand in the freezer. That would be very strange, even though you had just been with me and I have two hands right here. The, the disembodied member is awkward. And that's how we are to be as believers, too. When you're not here, the body doesn't function properly. It's missing something. And so that, that fellowship with believers is important, especially and increasingly so in a world that fights and battles against truth, the revealed will of God, to be encouraged by other people who believe similarly, who not believe like you, who know like you truth. Elijah has cared for God in so many very specific ways. Finally, the story of Elijah then returns where we started in 2 Kings. So you think then, if you've ever been a part of a, a Seder dinner, this is one of the things that Christians seem to love, like um, the Left Behind series, um, Joel Olstein and Max Licato, right? These are things that Christians love. Seder dinners are also things that Christians love. Um, and during the, the Seder dinner, the, the, the Jewish family will pour all, all kinds of different cups of wine. The final one is one that's for Elisha. The door is left cracked open to the home child from the home will go and see if Elisha showed up. Somebody will look in the cup and say, did anybody drink Elisha's wine? They're thinking about this return of Elisha is when the Messiah comes. So I've got a spoiler alert for the kids um, at Seder dinner. You can close the door and nobody needs to look. Elisha is not coming. In fact, he already came. And you look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 12 through 15, we read, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you are willing to accept it, that he, John, is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, Elijah won't be resurrecting or returning to earth to come to anybody's or everyone's Seder dinner. I don't know how that works. If it would be like a Santa Claus thing where it happens all in one night, or if it would just be one lucky family and they tell everyone. But Elijah won't be returning to announce the coming Messiah. Um, Jesus, who was conceived at some point about three months into 1 BC, or 0 BC, I'm not sure, you tell me, 
preceding him was John the Baptist. In fact, we see the two moms present at one point in the womb, and John leaps in the womb like a living, ensouled person inside there. So pre-23 weeks, post-23 weeks, not sure. Very much a human. So John the Baptist and the spirit of Elisha, who came like a prophet, like Elisha, right? Elisha comes to this very lost people, a bunch of uh, heinous people, actually, Baal worshipers. Um, this, this most heinous form of pagan worship. You can almost characterize any pagan worship as Baal worship. And so like Elisha came to a lost people who needed to return, the forerunner of Christ came to a lost people who needed to return. Hundreds of years of silence and just going through the motions of the law, going through the motions of temple worship. And then John comes on the scene. And you see John's this, this like weird, weird dude, right? In the woods wearing camel hair, which just, just that's got to make you angsty alone, right? I don't even know what camel hair feels like, but I don't think it's like alpaca fur. Right, so he's probably just uncomfortable all the time, and he has one of those like, like Nicholas-like dispositions. Right, it's gristly, and always frustrated. And so he comes in the same sense, like Elisha, like Elijah. Excuse me. Now, some people would say, John, you're just wrong. Jesus left the door open that Elijah is still going to come. And so in this fictitious conversation, I say, really, where? And they say, well, you haven't read your, read your Bible very carefully. It would be in Matthew 17, 10 through 11, where Jesus uses future tense language to say that he's still going to come. So Matthew 17, 10 reads, and the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elisha must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things which is a fantastic argument if Matthew 17 stopped in verse 11. But the problem with that argument, as it oftentimes is, is the Bible itself. And so it continues in verse 12, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Verse 13, and then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. You have in your hand a Bible that was written over a period of 1,500 years across 66 books, over 40 authors on three continents and in at least three languages. It's stupefying, it's life-changing, and it's life-giving. And we can always ask hard questions of it. I think sometimes we, we, we hear things and we've been told things for so many years, we just think it's true. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I remember um, believing that my mother told me, which I can't imagine is true because it isn't true. Um, like, I, like I was an adult arguing with my wife and my sister-in-law that house flies suck your blood. And they're like, dude, they totally don't. I'm like, yes, they do. My mom told me. You're, like, You're an adult. And no, they don't. Of course, at the same time, I remember my sister-in-law and my wife believing that hot dogs give you energy, which I think is probably true because they're food, but maybe not more than any other food. I'm just saying. I have the microphone, so I get to say. 
And I want to just pause and make one quick point. Um, if you're ever in a conversation with someone on a biblical, scriptural issue, and whether they're an atheist or someone with a short sleeve shirt and a bicycle, and they collide with something that you know is true, the absolute best course of action is always to open your Bible to the point that talks about that. The worst course of action is just to talk about why they're wrong and why you're right and all these things. Just say, hey, let's just open the Bible and let's look. Because sometimes going a couple of verses ahead or a couple of verses after just answers the question. So it is always the best course of action to open the Scriptures and read it. Many, many times it relieves the perceived conflict. So God being so consistent with himself, perfectly consistent, in fact. Um, his approach in Malachi 4, casting a warning that goes into the future, is consistent with his character across time. Wave after wave in the Bible, God reveals himself to a people. He goes to those people. He sends messengers. He leaves behind a written record of his revealed will. Sometimes he leaves behind other people who have a mandate to carry his message, who have a mandate to share about grace with others. God is described, I think it was by Spurgeon, as the hound of heaven. And he doesn't leave you alone. right? If, if God is after you, you should just, just give up. He's really good at that. It's going to be uncomfortable. that If the hound of heaven is after you, he will get you. And so depending on how hard-headed you are, it may take a while, but he wins. I guarantee you he wins. He's not casually knocking at your heart. That's silliness. Verse 6, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And we have to read that portion carefully. It's, it's a bit circular, what happens between the hearts of fathers and children. And so there's two things happening at the same time. Fathers' hearts are joining with children's hearts. Stop next line. Children's hearts are joining with fathers' hearts. Circular. And you think about the father's heart joining to the heart of children. Um, that's the difficult direction. You know, if you're an adult child, meaning you're a child, but your father, specifically, because fathers are a bit stubborn, um, you're, you're an adult child and you have a father, you know exactly how difficult that is. Like, when's the last time you got a message through to your adult father? You're probably thinking to yourself right now, that guy is stubborn and ridiculous. Well, give yourself a few years, you're headed that way too, Bob. <laughs> but also the hearts of children to fathers. So it's interesting, it's circular. No one's really in charge here because this is all God's working. This is stuff that God is doing. It's not talking about people coming together and agreeing and working through difficulties or working through issues and, and one just ends up agreeing with the other. The whole point here is that God is in the midst of this and people are agreeing and the agreement is on the issue that will come with the, with the son of righteousness. Take very much Jewish people when Elijah 
uh, comes, when John the Baptist comes, people will just agree with that message of Scripture and what was spoken about before, that bounding calf, will become true for the nation of Israel. They will be found in Christ when they repent and they believe together with the rest of the world. The Gentile nation and the whole world comes under Christ's umbrella into his kingdom uh, in, a, in a consistent accordance with his revealed will across all of those now 66 books written over 1,500 years, written on three continents by 40 different authors. This is the most incredible story that's ever been. And it's so frustrating that we just leave it. Like there's probably a Bible somewhere in your house that you could go and you could write, read me on the dust on the jacket. And so now we're closing the book of Malachi, which I said feels strange. Um, feels like this was fast. I don't know. I don't know how quick we were here. Um, and it, you know, it's 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 amazing how much ground we're covering, right? So we've done. Um, we're going to do First John. We'll have done Second and Third John. We've done Malachi. We're going to jump in and start doing some of the Psalms. Um, we're covering a lot of ground, right? There's a lot of scripture that we're covering. And so as we do this, if you um, create a, a notebook on each of the books that we're studying, um, over time, you'll have interesting things that will going on. And what's interesting about keeping notes as you do a book study is when you go back in five years or 10 years and you do another book study, it's interesting how you will interact with that text differently. Um, and, and what will have changed is you. Right, The scenarios in your life, the situations in your life, where you were, how tightly you were related to God, how much you were struggling in certain areas. Um, God is consistent and we are the ones who change. And so it's fascinating to spend time in the scriptures year after year. Um, if, you're, if you're kind of mechanical enough to do it, and you can do a Bible in a year plan or some kind of a reading plan. like Don't get caught up in the trap that you have to read the entire Bible in a year. Right? That can be a bit of a grind, and if you're not a fast reader, it can feel really arduous. So don't feel like you have to do that. There's all kinds of interesting readings that you can do. But if you're mechanical enough, right? if you're the kind of person that could eat the same food every night for dinner for the rest of your life, if you can read the same reading plan every year, year after year, you start to see things seasonally according to your reading plan. Um, things start to happen, and you start tying them with the Word. Or you start noticing how these different books interact with each other and tell the exact same story. Um, it's just an, a whole other level of richness to this, to this word. And, you know, we're coming up on a new year, right? So lots of people do their reading plans every year, right? January, you get started. March, you're in the desert somewhere trying to make your way through the lineage and chronicles. We have to remember that transformation happens by the active renewing of our minds. Um, it starts only, and it can only happen in the Word as we read the Word. You know, you think about all the different conversations that are going on in the world around us, um, what, what we get from, from academia, what we get from educated, learned people who, if, if, if we're being honest, by their very only thing that's available to them is the scientific nature, right? Or the scientific method. So they just try something and then see if it works or it hurts them. And if it doesn't, it might be true because it's not a law of nature. So it might be true until someone disproves it. Um, so by that process, to try to ferret out truth from the world around you, that's actually terrifying. 
because you can believe the wrong thing for a very long time until you find out that it's not true. So for those of us who know truth from Scripture, we've got this foundation of truth that we know to be true. Um, so there's all kinds of things that God has revealed. God, as the author and the only right moral agent for the world, talks to us about his moral perspective on everything that he created. It's why we know we can't murder. And I'm going to be quite honest with you. If there's no Bible, I have no, I can't come up with a logical reason why I can't kill you to get what I want. I mean, if you don't start from the Bible, and I'm not just talking about rule keeping and rule following, if there's no Bible, if there was no moral agent that created us, if really the only reason the world exists is because there was a rock that was floating around in space and space is nothing, but somehow a rock existed out of absolutely nothing and nobody made it because there's no prime mover, there is no God, but a rock existed, so start there. And somehow over time, even though no one made anything, that rock was inhabited by something that was not very complex, but maybe like an amoeba, right? Um, that existed even though nobody made it. And then somehow maybe there was water in a crystal. And lightning hit the crystal, which energized the amoeba, which caused it to start a process of like changing over millions of years. I mean, it's millions of years. This is actually how evolutionary biologists and big bang theorists see the creation of the universe. And then somehow that rock, there was a second rock, they banged into each other, which loosed some powder. And you know what happens when powder gets loose, right? Universes are created, complex organisms are made. Complex organisms can reproduce one another, and as they reproduce, they make anomalies, and those anomalies become improvements, and the improvements adapt and improve on themselves. And so that's where everything came from, all of life. And so if that's it, if all of life is nothing but a long cosmic accident, and you have something I want, I'm going to take it from you. And I may just, I mean, maybe I'll kill you. You don't have any right to tell me you can't. We're a mistake. We're an accident. We just happened. And so all of life is survival of the fittest. All of life is about me beating you at the thing that you want to do. There's no reason I should even be passingly kind to you. You're an obstacle to me for getting what I want. But for some reason, we all people have decided to organize and coordinate ourselves. We came up with language, right? It's like the old Geico commercial. It's like Brianna has a picture of me. I was working one time and I had long hair and it was down. She put me next to the Geico. Remember the Geico uh, caveman? Um, you know, this is, this is what, I guess, at some point we, we, turned, we went from monkeys into cave, cave people. Not cavemen, we were cave people. Um, and so these cave people started drawing pictures, and they started grunting, and then one of them was like, that was a useful grunt. I'll say that when I want your thing. And so they created language. We have to remember that that is actually the kind of thing that people believe. When we start to feel shy that people believe that we think that an, a creator who is holy and righteous made us and indelibly in us gave us an innate sense of right and wrong, but because we're not that creator, we actually can't perfectly uphold his goodness. And so sometimes we feel alienated from his goodness. Maybe you experienced that before. Maybe that was the matter of your salvation as you just felt in your flesh, you just unsettled. Um, and you started to realize your distance from a holy, righteous creator who is good and perfect and loving. And then you started to think about some of your own motives and motivators. They're all selfish. 
They're all about yourself. They're all about exceeding at every cost, at high cost. And then you saw God, maybe for reading the scriptures, maybe for hearing the teaching of the scriptures. You started to hear about this God who's good. Not only who is good, who is the source of good. Who created us and cares about us and we're valuable because we're his. That, that's where our value comes from is because we are God's and he cares for us. He loves us, in fact. He knows every hair that is on our head. In fact, the scriptures tell us he formed us in the womb, our inward parts. He is so intimately familiar with us, he knows every hair on our head, most of us. Some of us, he has no knowledge of that. But he cares for us, which is incredible. If you think about it, it's really incredible. It's not incredible because, oh, woe is me, he shouldn't care about me. It's incredible because we hate him. Um, and we like to think that we're born out of the womb and we're just sprinting towards God. We're really actually pretty good people at the end of the day, right? We're basically good. Um, and so when we see God, we go, oh, he's real good, so I want more of that. That's not, that is not the case at all. Um, I love the example of an infant. If you have an infant, as these guys do, if you don't, you may borrow theirs today after service. You can take it and you can leave with it. You can use miles for like the afternoon. Um, if a baby were born strong, like with the strength of an adult man, that'd be a terrifying creature. Could you imagine? Um, I had a buddy of mine whose baby scratched his cornea one time, like trying to that's a part of your eye, by the way, if you're struggling with that. Um, trying to grab at a toy. Right? You have to teach these little creatures to not hurt others. And it's hard, right? I remember when, when, when um, my oldest was a little baby, and then my second son came along, we used to have to tell him things like, no, 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 we don't hurt the baby. We'd be nice to the baby. And he couldn't say nice. He would say, nice. Nah, and he'd pet him, and then he'd try to grab his little face, pinch it. We have to be taught to care for one another, which is just a reflection on how far we are from God. And so God, being full of mercy and love, created us with a plan from the very beginning that he was going to redeem us because we have to have it, because we're not his moral character. We're not his moral fabric. We're, we're so far from who he is. So there was always a plan to save us, to save us from ourselves, frankly. Redemption was always part of the plan. Before Christ came, it's not as though the Jews worked really hard and some of them at the end of the day were, were actually good enough. They did it. And he's like, you know what? You live my perfect, righteous, holy character. Never once did you eat a pork sandwich. This is not how they were saved. They were redeemed in the exact same way that we were. They didn't maybe know that the object of their faith was going to be the finished work of Christ on the cross. They were saved because of God's grace, extended to them truth about himself, and then his mercy when they turned towards him. And so now for those of us and the rest of the entire world who are able to see Christ and see his finished work and receive the gospel, we get to continue being transformed just like the servant Malachi in chapter 4 left behind for Israel to return to the law. So rather than returning to the law, we stay in the word and we know that son of righteousness who was revealed. We're like that bounding calf who's floating through life. And so if you're that person where people ask you, hey, how's it going? And they're like happy and you're ready to undo them now with your curmudgeonry. 
We said this morning as Jeff came in, uh, Jeff came in full of joy and whistling as he often does, and immediately we started picking on him. Um, and I was joking and saying, you know, it's, 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 not that we, it's not that we get joy from picking on you. It's that as we see your joy disappear, that builds up joy in us, right? <laughs> it's not a transference. It's your pain that makes us happy. In forgiveness, in Christ, we get so much richness. And we forget that, I think, sometimes, because the circumstances of our life, we live in a dark and dying world. Everything around us is dying. All of creation groans under the pressures of the fall. The fall immediately impacted everything. Um, you, you notice when you, when you read, and if you, if you haven't read it recently, I would encourage you to go back. Read in the beginning of the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 3, and look at what happens in the fall. It's fascinating. Because in the very moment that they take what God said is true and they turn their back and they deny it or they question his goodness in it, because that's actually what happened in the fall, um, is that the serpent suggested to them that God is withholding good by asking you not to do this thing. And so by not trusting God's motives and by trusting the serpent and turning their back on trusting God and turning towards trusting something else, they sin. And in the moment they sinned and they fell not under God's protective care anymore, everything changed. It's not that God came into the garden and was like, whoa, Adam, you forgot a towel, bro. Adam knew suddenly that he was naked. This is not anything he realized before. He was hanging out. Everything was fine. Everything was perfectly pure in the world. There were no ulterior motives going on. And so God, by his grace, gives him some covering and before he sends them out in the world, he gives them some instruction to tell them what's going to go on and how things are going to be different now because now the world is going to be completely confusing and strange to you. The world is going to be unkind to you. Even the ground won't yield under your strength anymore. And so he always came from the very beginning with a plan for redemption of us because we need it. We couldn't even last a single generation before we turned our back on him. And so he, by his mercy and by his grace, sent a people to live different than everyone else with intimate knowledge about him so that we could see even with intimate knowledge about him, even with prophets, we still couldn't uphold his character. Even with a clear set of laws, we still couldn't follow it. And then he sent his prophets to, to speak more clearly and they still couldn't follow it. And then he sent his son Jesus to make that full payment for us. And he entered into, he entered in his church age. And he said, I'll, I'm going to come back for you all. When the time is right, I'm going to come back for you all. But now live for my glory before a watching world and tell everyone about me. That's our charge. We shouldn't feel burdened by that. Our literal job is to live in the world as Christian believing people in love with God, found in Christ, and dwelled by His Holy Spirit, bringing Him glory because we're joyful. That was the pronouncement of Christ. When, when, when the angel said in, in Luke chapter 2 and verse 10, when the angel comes to the shepherds in the field, he says, Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Your Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years across 66 books by 40 authors on three continents in at least three languages. And it tells us that we have an impenetrable joy in every circumstance 
Paul would say, we'd be pressed on every side. So it's not like things won't be tough, but you're not crushed by it because you have this surpassing knowledge of Christ. No matter what happens, in the end, you win. Right? Like, like Paul would reveal that even death is gain. That's why there's no more sting to it. And so we get truth from studying this stupefying, life-changing, life-giving word, and we're transformed by it. So I pray for us that we not be found drifting around and away from God, drifting towards lies, but be found tethered to truth, staying tight with fellow believers even more as the day draws near. Join me and let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for your servant Malachi coming to the people of Israel and explaining to them their need to return to the law before the day the Son of Righteousness would come. And God, we thank you for your faithfulness in bringing Christ into the world, living as always like us, yet without sin, and being made right as the only way by which we could be saved, having been tried like us in every way. And because there was no sin found in him, because the penalty of sin is death, his death can be accounted to us. And so we take on his righteousness. God, if there's anyone in the room today who does not know you as Savior and Lord, I pray that you would change that. I pray that you would make clear to them that salvation in Christ is a simple undoing of trusting themselves that started in the garden and is common to every single human. And that becomes trusting you, focused on Christ, relying on His finished work, not our own. And that your Spirit would indwell them. And God, that we would then get to walk alongside them as disciples. God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, Santa, join us in singing as we